0: Let me just encourage you, we're just continuing our worship now. We wanna continue it by opening God's word. We want to lean in to listen now. And we wanna respond at the end of this message uh, with faith. And so this is the continuation of our worship service. It's not just while we sing, but this is a, a holistic worship. We, we sing with our hearts and then we open God's word to hear from him from our hearts and then obey him as we, as we scatter today. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 13. If you have a device, you can turn to Acts 13. We're in the ESV version. We are still somewhat on schedule in the book of Acts as we're, as we're picking it back up. Um, and, and again, I, I, it's kind of awkward now to try to go back and recap 12 chapters of the book of Acts. But just very quickly to tell you, you know, after Jesus died and rose again, he commissioned his apostles and his disciples to get out there and to get out there and tell the world what they saw, what they experienced, that they saw the living Christ. And uh, many people, as they started this work of planting churches and spreading the gospel and and moving out, not only to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles as well, many people are coming to faith in Christ. And we saw that in the first 12 chapters of Acts. But we also saw, interestingly enough, that with that spread of the gospel came resistance. And by the way, with the spread of the gospel always comes resistance. And and with that resistance uh, comes suffering. And so we're going to open up uh, Acts chapter 13 and we're going to read about Barnabas and Paul uh, moving out. Uh, preaching the word to both Jews and Gentiles and then eventually uh, using this moment and opportunity to see how they split from preaching the word to the Jewish people to exclusively uh, bring the gospel to the Gentile nations which is really what the rest of the book of Acts will be taking us through so we're in Acts 13 if you want to get there now if you're not there already. So here's the thing. Regardless of your of your wiring, in other words, whatever your personality type is, however your wire, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, uh, whatever whatever number you are in the enneagram, or, or whatever like combination of letters you uh, you finished up with on Myers Briggs, whatever that stuff is, right? Um, your lives say something, right? Your lives speak boldly about what you believe to be true about God right? So that's just a reality that we carry around with us is that our our lives are sort of a walking testimony to the things that we believe. And because of that, the greatest threat in the church uh, would actually be unbelief. And and, and so whoever or whatever tempts us to not trust God, that would be a threat to us, right? And unbelief really is, is a thought or uh, an action inconsistent with who God is, what God has spoken, And what God has commanded. So if we want to define unbelief, that's how we would define it. Let me just say it again. It's a a thought or an action that's inconsistent uh, with who God is, with what he has spoken, and what he has commanded. Here's an example of that. For example, let's just go with anger, right? That's the low-hanging fruit for a lot of us of of things that we would feel like are sinful in our lives. and, And there's really not anybody that doesn't battle with some level of anger. There's not anybody out there that has never not gotten angry for the wrong Reasons, right. So here's what I mean by unbelief in terms of anger. Right. So if you lose your temper, for example, what's really happening is you're not believing God. You're not believing God is in control over a, a person or circumstance that you don't have uh, any control over. Right. And so in a sense, our anger is kind of fueled by unbelief. Another one would be like shaming, right? Uh, You're not believing that God affirms you. You're not believing that God accepts you. So you shame others out of a particular insecurity that is fueled and rooted in an unbelief. And so that's a little bit of what we're going to be diving into in Acts 13 this morning. um, Because Acts 13 provides us with a couple of things that help us guard against unbelief. Unbelief—it's what helped guard the early church against the threat of unbelief. And here's just a a couple of what those things are that we're going to cover this morning. The first one is consistent preaching of the word. That is one of the things that guards from the threat of unbelief. And, And the second one would be protection against wolves. So consistent preaching of the word, and then protection against wolves, both from the inside and the outside. So these threats of unbelief, sometimes they exist like right here, like inside the confines of the church body, and sometimes they come from the outside. An example of that would be my wife and I, man, we love to hike, I talk about that probably too much, but a a rainy day outside, when we wake up on our day off to go on a hike, a rainy day outside, it just threatens to ruin our hike because we just, you know, Man, if the mop is this bad without rain, how bad is it going to be when I get back from a hike in the rain? I just want to try to prevent that. But, uh, but it threatens to ruin our hike. And at the same time, grumpiness. Or like some kind of an argument that, that we might have, even though, of course, we would never have an argument, me and Melissa, before we do anything. But just say, just on that one weird occasion we did, I'm joking right now, but grumpiness or an argument, it can threaten to ruin it from the inside, right? So we have these threats from the outside and we have these threats from the inside that can threaten us to not believe God, to not believe what God has said is true, and then to disobey what he has commanded us to do. So the first one that we wanna look at, these threats of unbelief against the church that were happening in the early church, so they're happening now, they were happening then. The first one is, uh, as we pick up in in chapter 13, verses one through five, this is one of the ways that Barnabas and Paul guarded the church against unbelief, which was the preaching and the proclamation of the word. So here we are, chapter 13, verse one, it says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they... Arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Let's just stop right there for one minute. There's two words I want to key in on here, and they're set apart and sent. Okay, I guess that's three words. You're not a math guy, apparently. Um, Jesus sets apart and he sends Paul and Barnabas via the word of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the word in order to equip. The saints and by the way this is the pattern that Jesus established to build his church when you go to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 what does Paul tell us he says and he gave the Apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers to equip the Saints for the work of the ministry and then he goes on to say for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the, mat- to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this means that God has called shepherds and teachers and evangelists from the body of Christ to equip you with the word of Christ so that you grow to maturity in Christ, which is what guards you from unbelief. Okay? Um, Here's what God has not uh, called them to do. Here's what God has not called the shepherds and the teachers and the evangelists to do. So their job is not to provide you with a service, okay? And I, I just think it's important that we flesh this out a little bit and that we're clear about that, right? Because when we understand a service, right, we understand that it's something that is given to us to use and to consume, right? So you all have streaming services on your TVs right now and these services have been designed for you to to use for consumption, to be consumed by and to be entertained by. And again, they're not inherently evil. Now I have Netflix and and Hulu, just like you, just started season 40 of Survivor after a 10-year hiatus. Judge me on that one. Um, but that's what we're diving into right now on, uh, on, on, on our streaming services. But here's the thing. The role of the preacher is not the same thing, right? I'm not here for your entertainment, right? My actual job is to equip and to build you up for the work of ministry that you are to live out in your specific sphere of life. So man, God didn't call me to be funny, to be entertaining, or to start dancing for you on cue, right? Which it might be if substance was like a new drama on Netflix and sometimes it feels like that, I'm not gonna lie, all right? But because this is not Hulu, because preaching is not a streaming service, your call then as followers of Jesus is to be more than a mere consumer, right? More than a person who hears God's word come out of the mouth of the preacher. Romans two tells us, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So in addition to that, it's also not my job to simply transfer biblical information to you so that by the end of each Sunday, you can get up off the couch with some new facts about the Bible that you never had before. Like that's not what's going on in this very unique exchange that we're experiencing right now. So hearing the word is vital, But it needs to wet a longing and a desire to be a doer of the word because to hear without doing is deception, right? James 1 reminds us of this. He said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So is. Paul and Barnabas are going out there preaching the gospel in all of these places uh, that that have just been up to this point untouched by the gospel. That's what they're doing. They're equipping the saints uh, for the work of the ministry, right? That is their their mission that they're accomplishing before um, the Lord. So just an example of that, some of you can tell me a thousand facts about your favorite athlete or your favorite celebrity because you admire them but at the same time that doesn't mean you you have any kind of relationship with them at all right you'd be deceived into thinking you and Tom Brady are like brothers and that you're tight because you have his daily training regiment memorized by heart and I know some of you guys do that if you're Patriots fan right so knowing things about any of anybody any celebrity any athlete knowing things about Tom Brady or Joanna Gaines or Tiger woods or the tiger king, right? It doesn't equal a relationship with any of them. A relationship happens when your knowledge of a person has been transformed into an interaction with them that stirs your heart and affection for them. And this is how the gospel works. At some point, the word of God opened up your heart to the truth about Jesus and you counted the cost of following him because he's worthy to be praised. And so now your, your heart is for Jesus as a follower of him. You don't, you don't merely just do things under compulsion, right? You're not merely doing things because you're afraid he's going to be mad at you if you like miss the ball one day. Man, you, you go, you go after the things of God because you have a God that loves you with all of himself, and so we love him back with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love our neighbor as ourself. We go after those things because we have an affection for the one who has the greatest affection for us. Does that make sense? So God sent these early disciples like Barnabas and Paul to risk their lives, which they're doing here. So the message they proclaimed would transform a person's having knowledge about God into having hearts known by God. So that has to be the exchange right there. And then when that happens, sitting under the preaching of God's word is how your theology becomes manicured. It becomes maintained. It guards your theology from being choked out by the weeds of unbelief. And by the way, you have no problem believing that about anything else in your life. I mean, look at me right now, right? Clearly, I need a barber. None of you are gonna argue with me about that. Because when my hair is not manicured and maintained... It starts taking on a life of its own, right? Now, your theology is no different. Holding fast to the preached word is one of the ways that you war against the unbelief that is seeking to take on a life contrary to the life that you have in Jesus. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, don't miss that remind you part. He said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And then he says, for I delivered you as of first importance what I received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture and that he appeared to Cephas And then to the 12, we're going to see Paul preach a version of this a little bit later in the chapter. This is the preaching of the gospel. So the proclamation and the application of the word, it guards against unbelief. This was the mission of Paul and Barnabas as they are embarking out, as they are going out on mission to preach the word. And the reason why it's so important for us to receive the preached word, whoever we're receiving it from, as long as it is the gospel, is that it'll help guard us against some of the unbelief that we're going to see kind of sprout up in these two scenarios that Paul and Barnabas uh, experience. what helps guard us against unbelief? Well, the preaching of the word. And the second thing is protection against wolves on the outside. Look what happens when we dive into verse six here. It says, when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Paul and sought to hear the word of God. But uh, elamus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, we finally get to call him Paul now, right? Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So what we see here, we're gonna stop right there, is this man named Elamis, who was some kind of magician, prophet, clairvoyant in the court of the proconsul? He comes out hard against Barnabas and Paul because he didn't want the pro-council to be turned to the the faith and, and presumably left without a job, we would imagine. So he becomes a voice of opposition to Paul and Barnabas. Now, first off, the message of the gospel will always be faced with resistance, right? The gospel is an offense, the Bible tells us, everywhere it's proclaimed. And secondly, Proclamation needs to be accompanied by protection against wolves because wolves threaten our belief. And Paul goes on to say in Acts 20, we're going to get there in a few weeks, but he goes on to say, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. And then he says this, listen, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So people like Elamus, man, these, these are threats to the proclamation and the preaching and the message of the gospel. And they need to be rebuked. These are men that need to be rebuked for their spiritual blindness and unbelief the way Paul did. Which is why Paul, uh, you know, man, this is why Paul, you know, proclaims to this guy, rebukes this guy. And he's not super subtle. He's not trying to be careful not to shame Elimus. He says, you son of the devil, an enemy of all unrighteousness. He doesn't spare his words. He takes this guy and he says, no. He calls him to task. Paul knew, by the way, what it was like to have that kind of spiritual darkness living inside a person. He knew what it was like to have darkness fall upon a person by the hand of the Lord. And this is what happens to Elamus. His blindness becomes an outward manifestation of the inward state of his heart, which was unbelief, by the way. And of course, this represents God's judgment on Elamus, right? So Paul doesn't only proclaim the word, he also protects the word against those who were threatening to silence it and what turns out what comes from this is that the proconsul believes when he sees what happens so so the the proconsul not only hears the word but he sees the way that Paul protects the word from being silenced and something within all of that causes this man to believe the gospel so this kind of causes us to kind of step back and go, okay, so you're talking about wolves. We're talking about these threats both from outside and inside the church. Well, what is a wolf? How would we define a wolf? Well, here's, here's a way to define it. It would be someone trying to turn people away from the faith like we see here in Elamis through opposition to the word. Now, how would that look like? Uh, how would that look at substance? Uh, well, it could look like somebody coming in and starting to slander, say, the leadership Someone gossiping about another member, someone that is uh, kind of stirring within the congregation, trying to create and cause division. Somebody that comes in and starts murmuring against the doctrine of the church, uh, maybe starts complaining about what they don't like, about what they see going on in the church. It's basically someone seeking to turn others from the faith and doing it in a way that causes disunity and division. And what's so interesting is that sometimes threats from the outside, they're, they're easier to defend against than even the ones that come from the inside, right? Because we can see storm clouds coming in many times, right? We can go grab an umbrella. When we see a storm coming in, we can put on a raincoat. We can roll up our windows. We can stay inside. A threat from the outside um, is not coming in as subtle sometimes as threats that come in from the inside, which can be harder, right? I mean, because how many of you have walked into a flooded basement, after a massive storm. I mean, you, you didn't know that it was filling up. Why? Well, because it happened while you were sleeping and something went wrong and you walk down there and you're like, you know, knee deep in, in water. And so we see threats that came in from the outside as the word was being proclaimed. And then now we see, as we pick up in verse uh, 13, threats coming in from the inside. And I need you to buckle in because we got some reading to do here. So let's start in verse 13. It says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Verse 21, then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus as the promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming. The sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him, meaning Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, means he died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Verse 43, and after the morning of the, the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with him, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict and with the Holy Spirit. So what we see right here is that uh, Elamus was this threat that came in from the outside that Paul rebuked and yet we see as they travel and they go to the synagogue, a threat comes in from the inside that needs to be uh, dealt with. They travel to Antioch, it says, in Pisidia and they enter the synagogue on the Sabbath. Paul gives a word of encouragement. He's outlining God's plan of salvation beginning with the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt all the way through King David who God raised up to be a king who foreshadows King Jesus. Of course, he was crucified and raised by God from the dead. And Paul, what he does is he summarizes his whole message uh, in verse 38. If you go back to verse 38 and 39, Paul says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of God of Moses. So what Paul was doing and and what I can only do very briefly here is just point out that this is the heart of the gospel message that forgiveness is proclaimed. Everyone who believes is freed from everything that they couldn't do in their own goodness or their own works to find peace and salvation with God. And so he points that out to the, to the Jews and the Gentiles and everybody who had ears in this synagogue. But yet he warns them in verse 40 against unbelief. He says, beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. He said, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one Tells it to you. So he's reading a prophecy about them that was coming to pass as he's proclaiming the gospel message to them. And what's interesting for us is that of all the things Paul could have warned the people about, what does he do? He narrows it down to unbelief here in verse 40 and 41. And of course, Paul's words they ring true because the whole city comes out to hear him preach the next week, but it's the Gentiles not the Jewish people who it says believe and were appointed eternal life in verse 48. And the Jewish people came against them. They contradicted, he said, what Paul had spoken. They reviled him because of their jealousy, because this message of the gospel was infringing on their rules and traditions and their religion that they used to control the people. But that didn't deter Paul and Barnabas. It said they spoke out boldly in verse 46. So God has given us, he's given me, uh, he's given you, he's given us shepherds and teachers and evangelists to proclaim the gospel because there are wolves both inside and outside the church that threaten us to live as people who are not believing the gospel. I mean, there is resistance all around you. There's resistance right now all around us. Paul and Barnabas were met with it. It's not unusual. But this causes us to ask the question, well, then how do we think of unbelief? How should we think of that word when we apply it to where we're at today? Well, I think a good way to think of unbelief is thinking of it as as a thief, as someone wishing to steal and kill and destroy, which is how Jesus describes our enemy, describes Satan, right? We need to think of unbelief as a serpent whispering to Eve when he said, did God really say? That temptation to not believe what's true about God or what God has said. Unbelief is that way that seems right to us, but in the end, leads to death. And so the problem with that, the problem with that, when, when unbelief infiltrates our hearts or infiltrates the life of a church, it leads us to justification. It leads us to justification of all kinds of behaviors, right? Here's just a few. It leads us to justifying anger, right? It's my right. We, we get all about our rights. It's my right. Instead of asking, is this right? Is it Right? which is the way a Christian is supposed to bend as they believe and hope and trust the Lord. It also leads us into pragmatism, which is just really choosing what works over what is actually true. I mean, it doesn't matter, man. It works, whatever works. I'm going to dive into that. I'm going to employ that instead of what we know to be true. And what that does is it kind of sh- shaves away, it scrapes away at our integrity. It justifies us being anxious people. Somehow we think that having some anxiety is is something that we can justify because everybody around us is bubbling over in anxiety. And again, if you have anxiety, um, that's not to feel condemned for your anxiety. I experience anxiety on a daily basis. We all do, it depends what we're doing with that anxiety. Are we becoming like Martha in the story of Martha and Mary where Martha was just anxious about so many things while Jesus was right there being ignored, right? It's choosing the wrong portion of things to bring us the peace that we long for and the peace that we crave. Unbelief leads us to justifying, even as far as betrayal, betraying Jesus in some unique ways. What do we see in the lives of Judas and Peter? We see two dudes who who did the unthinkable. Judas betrays Jesus to his death, um, with no remorse no repentance and yet Peter betrays Jesus and eventually comes back and feels remorse um, and receives the forgiveness of Christ unbelief leads us to justifying hypocrisy it leads us to acting like a Pharisee it leads us to self-righteousness thinking that Man, we, we, we know something, we have some bit of knowledge or we perform some kind of good works that justifies us before the Lord and with people. Look what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.18. He said that you may wage the good warfare. So he's encouraging Timothy uh, right here. He's saying wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And he says this, he says, by rejecting that, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. So when we let unbelief infiltrate the ranks of our hearts and our gathering and our church bodies, the potential is that our faith is going to become a shipwreck because we're justifying all kinds of behaviors. Um, So unbelief makes shipwrecks of our faith. What are some of the warning signs of that? Well, some of the warning signs, I, 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 I came up with three warning signs for us and the first one is this is that sometimes we can we can sort of assume this posture that says man everyone else is the problem right we kind of step back and we say no it's them it's always them we're pointing outside of ourselves saying that's the issue and so the solution we find when we're people that kind of look around and always are thinking the problem is out there is that man we just become black and white about everything and by the way the Bible is not black and white about everything right it's black and white about the things that need to be black and white there's a lot of gray as well right so when everybody else is the problem we become black and white we lack grace we demand our rights rather than asking what would be the right thing to do in terms of holding integrity before the Lord Um, another warning sign would be when we are focusing on God as the problem God is the problem Um, God is the reason why I'm in this place. It's the reason why I find myself in this particular season of life. How dare him cause me to put me in this particular place that I find myself in? And so the solution for that is we just become expert complainers, right? We just become expert complainers. We become angry with God and we find that we have hearts um, that are constantly stewing in the place and the position we're in, when in reality, we're just mad that God is not giving us the kind of comfort that we feel entitled to and that we feel like we deserve. And then the third thing, the third warning sign would be, Just the person that just says, you know what, man, there's really no problem. None of this matters. Or, you know what, man, it's all corrupt. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket, right? So, their solution then is to back away and to have this sense of ambivalence and then just ignore any kind of wisdom and kind of compassion that we need uh, to have for our neighbors and the people around us. It's their insecurity, it's putting up a wall and a barrier that says, man, I don't want anybody or anything to be able to touch me. I wanna remain uh, unaffected by all these things that are swirling around me. I'm I'm not gonna fall into some of those tendencies that I see people falling into around them, but you're still falling into this tendency of ambivalence, ignoring wisdom, lacking compassion. So what you believe will always be what you're speaking out most boldly in your life. And what we want to do is we want to contrast everything I just said with Jesus, who at the end of his earthly life said, not my will, God, but your will be done who it says when he was reviled, in other words, when he was slammed against, when all kinds of lies were spoken against him, when all kinds of untruths were brought up by people that wanted to see him on that cross, and he just didn't come back at them. He didn't revile back. So let me just say this. The real crisis, okay, the real crisis of COVID, if I can say it that way, will be when the church who has been taught the word starts contradicting it by the words coming out of their mouths. Because look, I want to speak to you with compassion and I want to speak to you with softness right now. And I want you to hear me. What will Christians be remembered for when this whole thing, whenever this whole thing is over? Are we going to be remembered for speaking the truth with gentleness and seasoned with Saul, as scripture tells us? Or is it going to be harsh and unreasonable ranting about how our rights are being taken away? I know that stepping on some toes, saying that, but those are toes that need to be stepped upon, right? When you see Christians only speaking up passionately about the things they are against, it leaves no room to proclaim who they are for, and therefore calls out our real passions into question. What will Christians be remembered for when this is over? So listen, Christians can be political. Christians can have their opinions. Christians can share their concerns and they can stand up against many things. But it's not who we are first. It's never what we lead with. And it's okay if nobody has ever told you that, but you need to hear it now because substance needs to be decidedly Christian in these times. It needs to be decidedly of Christ, which is what being a Christian is. It needs to be decidedly laying down their rights to love Jesus with all their heart, which comes out practically in the form of loving their neighbor as their self. Because here's the thing about unbelief, okay? It's foolish and it's sad because it causes you to miss out on all the blessings of Jesus. It causes you to miss out on his care and his compassion and his strength and his hope and his forgiveness and his approval. And for what? What's the alternative for you, brother and sister in Christ? Unbelief simply means that you have another savior in mind besides Jesus. Now for the Jews, it was the law. It was the Ten Commandments, it was their tradition. Is there a tradition in your life you're hoping will save you or soothe you if you just stick to it unwavering? I like some of my traditions. I like some of my family traditions, but they make horrible saviors. How many examples do we see? How many examples do we need of people who have missed out on the blessings of God because of unbelief? The Bible has a few, right? Right? In the Old Testament, the Israelites wander for 40 years but they don't enter what's called the promised land. They don't enter this rest that God describes it as having for them because why? Because of unbelief, the book of Hebrews tells us. In John chapter six, we read how many of Jesus' disciples no longer walked with him at some point. They all ditched out. They all left, a whole mass group of them. Why? Because of unbelief. Remember in Matthew 13, when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, Nazareth and and the people took offense at his words. Remember what it says? It says, he didn't do mighty works because of their unbelief. Are you missing out on the blessings of Jesus? Are you missing out on everything that Jesus has for you because of unbelief? And yet we're we're given encouragement at the same time for unbelief. We have examples of it. We also have encouragement for unbelief, right? Because we see Jesus do a mighty work in Mark chapter 9 for a father who has a son with an unclean spirit inside of him. And You know what Jesus says? Jesus says all things are possible for one who believes. And then the father, uh, knowing his weakness, he famously says this line. You've heard it. I believe, help my unbelief. So for those of you who are just hanging on right now and you feel like your belief has been whittled down to a thread, tie it to Jesus. Your desire to want to believe and your humility in admitting you lack ability to believe are the seeds of belief. And Jesus doesn't despise you in that. He bids you to come and find rest in Him. So the question that you wanna ask is, which direction today does your unbelief bend? Because we know ultimately unbelief, all unbelief, always bends in the direction away from Jesus. But here's what we know about and what we embrace about Jesus he always believed the father. And Jesus was bold and Jesus spoke the truth and Jesus called out hypocrisy and Jesus challenged unbelief and Jesus condemned those who led people astray. He warned against temptation. He stepped boldly into suffering. A couple of things, if that sounds discouraging, number one, you're not Jesus. And number two, you're not Jesus. Those are the two points I had with that. So Jesus was able to do something perfectly that we will never be able to do perfectly. But it's his perfection and his righteousness that if you have submitted your life to Jesus is laid on you. So now you have the power and the ability because you have the same spirit inside. You have the same spirit inside who emboldens you with a peculiar power under constraint and a peculiar power under weakness to be humble ambassadors of truth, to be humble friends to the friendless. There's a lot of friendless people right now. To be humble servants to the hurting, and there's a lot of hurting people right now. To be humble teachers to those who are being led astray, and that's always the case. To be humble citizens of your community who are characterized by a deep belief in the trustworthiness of Jesus, no matter what is coming, unraveled. Jesus is your best strategy against unbelief. And believing Jesus is the path, as it says at the very end here, when all was said and done at the end of chapter 13, believing Jesus is the path to rejoicing, which is our most effective defense, just like it was for Paul and Barnabas, in times of unrest.